Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 83 of the Petronas Podcast. It is Friday, May 12th, 2023. Happy Friday to everyone. Um, this podcast is not recorded. I'm going to do a nice introduction and uh, recap of the markets for everything happening in the world right now as of May 12th, 2023. But this podcast <clears throat> is an awesome, um, pretty off the cuff, not off the cuff, but uh, a relatively um, non- um, PC podcast that I gave when I was in Washington, D.C. Um, a few weeks ago on April 18, 2023. Um, I was with my old uh, employer and nonprofit, the Energy Policy Research Foundation. Um, they were having an event on energy security, and there was a, a gentleman, um, Larry Goldstein, who's a board member who spoke on, on the Saudi side. Um, there was a, a Japanese representative talking about um, <clears throat> A Japanese consul representative talking about Japan and the G7 and the G7 communique, and I was there speaking about U.S. shale and um, and U.S. production and what's going on in that space. And then there was also a, a, a lots of folks on the political side talking about what's going on within Congress, etc. So my presentation was on U.S. shale. It's, it's sort of a, a precursor to a paper that's going to be released with the Energy Policy Research Foundation that I wrote called. Um, unconventional and underestimated U.S. shale. And really, this presentation and this talk that you're going to hear is a, is a, a, a sort of fun uh, walkthrough of what's going on in the U.S. shale space and why I think it's really critical for policymakers to understand how important it is to, that the messaging and understanding of the regulatory side of what's going on in Washington, that the, the folks in on the ground who are putting the drill in, back into the ground and who have to who have to create a strong investment narrative around that, that they have certainty around that. So we talk about U.S. shale production in the context of national energy security. Um, and that's the point of this presentation. So I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy it. Um, and I look forward to hearing the feedback. So keep in mind, that was April 18th, uh, 2023. That was a few weeks ago. Um, the presentation is very, uh, is very U.S. shale focused. So it is not it is not ruined by being delayed a, a few weeks. Um, and prices at that time point were $80.86 for WTI because we were coming off the back of all the, uh, the, all the OPEC cut moves. Now, since then, today, May 12, 2023, uh, just a few weeks later, we have really come off these prices. We have seen 69 and change. We have seen oil prices hover on the 68 level. Right now, we WTI is 70 bucks, 70.04. We've really seen some serious narrowing in the Brent WTI spread, which is very positive um, for for many folks. But that's narrowed to just four bucks. Brent is 74.17. Nat gas is 227. Nat gas is still getting absolutely murdered. Um, and Dutch GTF is has really fallen. That is at 10.46 right now. So this warmer weather across the world, um, in terms of an unseasonably warmer winter and less heating days required, has really really impacted net gas. Um, that being said, uh, we <laughs> the global economy is not in a good position. So I think there's a – I've been talking about this before. I talk about this a lot in, in various presentations. Um, there will be another podcast release on my trip to Midland and a presentation I gave to the Society of Petroleum Engineers last week. Super fantastic trip. I'll get into that in a second. Um, and a really, really great presentation, which I think you guys will enjoy. Um, but right now in, in the global economy, there's not a whole lot of positive – sentiment, right? There's nothing sort of out there. We've got uh, Janet Yellen, um, who's, she's at the G7 right now in Japan meeting with folks, and there's, a, there's talks on the debt ceiling. Um, so she keeps getting on TV and talking about the debt ceiling. So there's 
we, we had softer economic data out of China that continues. All these economic data points out of China continue uh, to be softer. They had their, their big holiday um, a couple weeks ago that did not prove as positive as people expected. There was an increase in services, um, but there hasn't been an overall robust increase in anything else. So it's not really driving oil demand. So I think you have to look at oil prices in a couple different ways, and that's that you know we oil prices are getting moved on sentiment. They're getting moved on news. We have thinner trading volumes on on contracted WTI volumes. So you're getting algorithmic trading and lots of exacerbated swings. However, you are also seeing crude oil really probably trade the market better than most trades, right? It's, it's sort of a forward-looking, looking at um, these recessionary factors. So lots of things. Um, the recession word is, I mean, you've seen the stock market come down this week. Um, the debt ceiling or, or worries that will the U.S. will default on the debt not really being priced in on individual stocks necessarily. You have a lot of, but apart from that, you have a lot of businesses, so-called businesses, saying obviously it would be very bad to default on debt. We'll get into that in a second. It would be bad to default on debt. However, we've done it before. It, we're not, it doesn't actually hurt usually the day-to-day -day consumer um, the way that I think a lot of politicians are making it sound like it would. But we should expect oil prices to be dampened. If we're having commodity prices overall this week, especially copper, um, and on the sentiment out of China, weaker economic data out of China. On the China piece, I would also caution everyone. We see Europe, Europe is looking to make better, uh, better trade deals with China. Um, Janet Yellen, Yellen is sending very, very mixed signals with regards to China. The U.S. is sending very, very mixed signals with regard to China. I think the U.S. is, just like the Fed, is being, doing a very, very poor job of sort of talking about and illustrating where we stand on China with regards to trade and the, and the economy and with regards to national security. Unfortunately for Janet Yellen and for the President of the United States, those are intrinsically related. Um, so China, the, the trade that we have with China is intrinsically related to national security, especially when it comes to solar panels um, and all these things. And the, if you hear the stuff with regards to solar panels in China and Biden saying that he's not going to, uh, that he's not going to restrict imports of these solar panels from East Asia, the reason that's a really big deal is because we ban solar panel imports from China. They were coming from the province of Xinjiang, where there's documented forced labor, largely, you know, concentration camps, uh, intern forms of camps with forced labor for Uyghur Muslims and others that are producing these solar panels. So we were restricting our solar panel imports, but basically China and almost all of this, this polysilicon comes from the province of Xinjiang. So what happens is that they push this all the way to other countries, to uh, Vietnam, to Malaysia. And so now we're getting these solar panels from Eastern from East Asia, but these are just Chinese solar panels. Um, and so the U.S. is looking the other way and saying, hey, this is not a big deal. We need these solar panels. We'll be fine. This is something I brought up uh, before in the context of energy security. It's very similar to what um, Europe thinks that they're doing. They're importing a ton of solar panels. They've had 122% increase of solar panel imports from Europe, uh, from China to Europe over the course of 2022 during the war in Ukraine. And um, that they basically think, hey, okay, we'll, we'll look aside to, we'll look away from the for the human rights abuses. We'll look away from the life cycle emissions from this being produced by coal and how messy this is. And once we have these solar panels, we don't have to worry about because we have them. The trouble is they you do have capital refreshment costs and you do have to replace these solar panels over time. And these are this is a Chinese product and not likely a well-made Chinese product. So you some solar panels you have to replace within one to two years. Some of them may last 12, some of them may last 15, but they probably don't last the, the lifespan of the 20 that people are expecting. So that's a, that is a very huge issue and something within the energy transition right now um, and stuff going on with the Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act as we speak. But continue to expect 
lingering uh, lingering data points, continuing data points on China to come in weaker, and that to impact commodity prices and Im in turn impact oil. Um, and oil being traded as this sort of trade of recession um, and fears of, of softer demand, which we're already seeing really materialize in the global economy. Um, so the debt ceiling, I, I do think we should spend a little time talking about that. We'll talk about Jamie Dimon's comments with regards to um, stickier inflation as well, because we had two big reads of inflation data this week. We had the consumer price index and the producer price index. And I think if you're listening to the stock market, you've probably heard some incorrect commentary with regards to what those are. There's a lot of, I, I think, it becomes very, very political, both the debt ceiling and inflation as well. Um, but right now, with regards to the debt ceiling, you have, um, and, and there's stuff going on with the Fed and the FDIC as well with regards to all these bank calls. But the, the, there's a number of things going on with the economy, from inflation to inflation data, which was high, to um, the Fed and not doing a good job of telling the market what they're doing as well as the, uh, the Fed basically saying, going to big banks and saying, you have to pay us now for all the, the big bailout that we did of Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks that they bailed out, because they bailed out everything, not just the insured deposits, which was unprecedented. Now they're going to the big banks to pay that tab, which I think is, is definitely unfair, um, given that uh, they bailed out billionaires and millionaires within Silicon Valley Bank. So I think that was a little inappropriate. But the debt ceiling problems that we're having, um, probably not... Not, they're probably weighing into the stock market to the tail end of this week, um, but it has become very partisan, as it always is. Um, and uh, right now you have, you have McCarthy on one side with the House as a Republican. You have Biden on the other side. They were supposed to meet earlier this week. They agreed to stall to wait on that, and they'll be meeting next week. Um, you know, the, the, there is a risk that we that the deadline comes due um, and that things don't get paid off immediately. Now, Interest payments, the prioritization would be to pay off interest payments on treasuries and then um, and to make the biggest stuff, right? The biggest stuff, military, everything that we need to spend on. But there, we, we have done this in 2011, and you can have delays on payments. Stuff eventually gets paid, unlike when we had during COVID where people were couldn't get evicted and you had a lot of homeowners who were renting their homes who never got paid rent. Um, so, you know, everyone keeps saying the U.S. cannot be the deadbeat dad, that the U.S. has to pay their bills and we pay our bills. Well, yes, um, that that's, you know, important, but that doesn't didn't seem to be the case during all these other policies. And um, things that Republicans are asking for are that, you know, um, which, which there's a lot in there that could potentially be up for grabs, but they're, what they're asking for is that the um, COVID-related money be clawed back um, and that be put back into the system um, and to pay off, to pay down debt. And they're also asking that folks that are getting aid from the government, particularly food stamps, um, have to be employed or work to get employed. Um, and the reason the employment piece matters um, and the reason this, this does matter is because uh, there are independent surveys from the Congressional Budget Office that talk about how much spending this administration and Congress has spent and how that has contributed to inflation. When you spend a lot of money, it's inflationary. That's just a reality. It's not political. It is a reality. Um, and then when you don't have, when you have lots of fiscal lags within the system, you don't have an incentive for people to be to go into the um, workforce, and that creates in, it lags as well and inflationary issues. And so we had inflation data this week, which was um, so. Looming issues with the debt ceiling, you know, that is going to be ongoing until it till the shoe drops. So we will that's the space to continue to watch. We'll continue to talk about it. Um, but what it matters in the context of all this inflation issues is that we still have three point four on 
percent unemployment. We have um, nearly two people, two job applications for everyone opening. Um, the data that you might have heard, the unemployment went up. Um, that data came out today that uh, it, from the state of Massachusetts that there was a lot of fraudulent um, unemployment data within there. That so that skewed the data to the upside. So that's probably not truly correct. So. The market might have rebounded on that, thinking, hey, this is good. The Fed will, what the Fed wants to do is increase unemployment a little bit, soften the economy without cratering the economy and cool off demand and, and loosen price levels. That's not really actually happening. What happened was that we see real hourly earnings in April go up by 0.1%, so they're still going up. If you're looking at the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, not a good sign for the Fed, not good a good sign for anyone is that sticky inflation, the ex inflation expectations over the longer term are actually trending up. That is a big, big problem because that means that folks will continue to ask for higher wages. Folks will continue to um, to bake this into their um, their spending levels, and that that will be mean that inflation will maintain its persistence. Um, so overall, inflation also is at at four point nine percent for the month that, that came out this week. That is a a problem in that. The overall inflation has come down a smidge, but that's basically because of energy. But core inflation is actually up. It's at 5.5%, and it went up 0.4%. So all items, less food and energy, actually went up. Same thing I've been talking about for a while. It's because of service costs, and it's because of shelter prices, which continue to go up. Um, so the other thing I just want to mention is, is how important this sticky and persistent inflation is. And, and if you're listening to the stock market, you're reading Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, or any, any stuff on this, you know, I think people don't realize that the this it's not just the higher interest rates that have impacted banks and and people spending it is increasingly inflation when you have less money in your pocket you spend less and we see that impact on discretionary items so big ticket items one if you were financing them it's too expensive to finance them yes but you also just have less money to spend on them and that there's a double whammy to this discretionary sectors because they have had a harder time of passing on inflationary costs to them especially now um, because the consumer can't afford it so they're just not buying it when it comes to food we've all eaten it because everybody increases their price and the businesses do well but the consumer is really penalized and so that's been this this weight of inflation and even if the inflation rate comes down overall prices are not ever going to come down it's just the rate of the price increases that slows so you're never going to see lower prices at chipotle you know the interesting thing is when you think about oil oil prices actually come down and you see a sticker price on gasoline prices that actually moves down the rest of the economy things basically stay the same price now you can have big tech changes within tvs and those prices come down but for most things it is sticky and it's persistent so these lasting price increases especially in food are really really damning to the average consumer in the u.s economy and the global economy and consumer so super big things to just think about in that standpoint when you're thinking about in the context of recession. This recession is coming, whether people want to believe it or not, it's already, it's sort of there. We just haven't had that major shoes dropping, but we have all kinds of shoes dropping from the bank failures to the debt ceiling to everything. I mean, one little thing has to give for this to really come cratering down. And uh, the last thing I'll say on, on just two things and wrapping up is that, you know, Jamie Dimon was interviewed by Bloomberg. He made some comments with regards to he has been consistent with his comments with regards to sticky and persistent inflation, saying that the Fed is going to have to maintain rates for higher than people expect for longer because of the sticky and persistent inflation. I beyond agree with that, have called for that for since the very beginning. If the Fed does cut rates, that is an inappropriate thing to do when you have this high and sticky and persistent inflation, especially when it comes to food um, and your everyday items. So that is a big problem. And you have to have an incentive and alternative to put your money, you know, you have to be able to offset some of that inflation and CDs and fixed income are, are doing that. Um, 
So the last thing I'll mention is please listen to the latest podcast. They are phenomenal. If you haven't listened to the podcast with Daniel Siever, episodes 81 and 82, I, the feedback on them is incredible, as is the one previous one, episode 80 with, with Ryan Keyes. Um, these are really frank conversations, and we get into a lot of the topics that I've been working through with clients and giving presentations. Um, I was in Midland last week. Um, if you haven't, uh, so that will be dropping in a couple of weeks. I'll be putting out that presentation and talking about that trip. Was able to go to the field with an operator. It was fantastic. We talked a lot about emissions and the energy transition and everything happening. Um, and, you know, Midland is just a completely different world. I, I can't encourage folks enough to go visit Midland, to fly in, to look out the window, um, and just to talk to people on the ground and appreciate how different it is than, say, Colorado or Pittsburgh, where folks are afraid to talk about energy, even though they're producing it there. Um, and Midland is very much an oil town, has always been an oil town, but it makes a huge difference in the ability to actually drill a well. There's drilling within the city. Um, they have sound walls up, but they still have drilling within the city. You have pump jacks um, in people's backyards. Um, so it's, just, it's a very, very unique place. It's awesome. The Permian Basin Petroleum Museum, Museum should be a must-have for every regulator, every policymaker, anyone who is uh, touching energy but doesn't know it really well should have to see that. And um, lastly, I was quoted in the Financial Times. Uh, this is, again, something I've been working on a while. I think this is really important and serious for people to appreciate. Is uh, So those quotes in the Financial Times are with regards to share price performance and um, the lack of love for oil and gas. And I think, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about ESG and the energy transition, it may sound like I'm just sort of, you know, ripping and talking about greenwashing. But the reality is, is I think oil companies have to be very, very ser serious and cognizant about how they're talking about emissions and ESG and the energy transition because it is impacting their share. It could be impacting their share prices, and I believe it is, in that the incentive for the retail investor or the generalist investor or the average investor to want to be in oil and gas, the story about emissions and net zero 2050 is skewing that because net zero 2050, according to the International Energy Agency, is a 25 million barrel a demand drop by 2030, which means most folks are out of a job. And that means that if I'm the generalist investor, I don't think oil, you know, if I don't think this business is going to be around in 10 years, why would I Why would I be buying that stock for long only? So I think it's really important to think about this. I'm summarizing that, and that's very brief. But put these, putting this in the context of investment and where the, these companies need to be talking about and the industry needs to be talking about this industry, the longevity and the story of their businesses and what they do um, and why folks should invest in them. So that that's something that has to be addressed and mentioned. This comes back to the piece on education, which I talked about with uh, with Daniel Siever. But with that, I really, really hope you guys enjoy this this uh, presentation. Uh, it, it was super fun. You'll hear a lot of laughing um, and joking within it. Um, I, I basically talked about I don't have to be as politically correct as, as the rest of them in D.C. So hope you guys enjoy it, folks. Talk to you soon. Bye. The blessing of um, formerly working for Lou and now working in Denver and having my own businesses I am not as politically correct as the rest of you, um, and nor do, uh, and that's how I run a business. And so there are some large elephants in the room, like the energy transition, like China that hasn't been mentioned, and you're, I do have the G7 communique, so you're 100% on point. And when we're talking about U.S. oil and gas production, we have to be, you have to be thinking about really serious things, like policies, um, like what is the investment, you know, what is the investment horizon? Do companies feel like they can invest? And I can tell you right now, they do not feel like they can invest. They do not feel like they're given a long-term platform. We do have the most anti-oil and gas administration we've ever had in, in the history of the United States of America in office today. That is a problem for producers who have to put the drill bit into the ground and have to make the argument to their backers, the people who are giving them money, that this is a good idea to, we, to invest in this. Um, and yes, shale, luckily, we can drill this stuff pretty quickly. 
Um, but you can see this really big messy mix right now between public operators and private operators. And it's, it's articulating itself through what you guys see in DC, what you see in New York is what is US shale actually producing and what's the future of it? And the public operators and their sort of entrenchment in this thesis of the energy transition and everything happening is giving a bit of a different skewed view that US shale just cannot produce and we're kind of stuck where we're at and the public guys are never gonna dr drill anymore. And part of that's because they have caved a lot on the energy transition stuff. But we do have a lot of private activity and when we look at this, you can actually say that the rock is doing something else. So, I cover every, the entire global oil market, but I did cut my teeth on U.S. shale and specialize in it. So it is fun to get back into it now because no one's paying attention to it. This is the first time people are starting to actually question what's U.S. shale doing, and um, it actually looks pretty good. Where am I pointing? All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So we'll, we'll really quickly go through drilling, you know, drilling and production activity, the public versus privates, which I think is something people are really missing. And then we'll talk about production, and you can actually see it. And I think the, the regulation, the sentiment, the hurdles, the G7 communicate, very, very serious stuff that cannot be underscored and underestimated of how important that is. Because if you want LNG 10 years from now, you've got to have a, an investment climate that the operators want to drill for oil and gas. And I know no one believes we're going to need oil and gas past 10 years from now. We're probably going to need a 50 and 100. So you damn sure need to be harnessing this because we are the largest oil and gas producer in the world. And that's not, people don't say that either. Certainly this administration doesn't say it. Okay, so next. All right, so US oil and gas production, 12.5 million barrels per day is, is oil production. Um, you can see we declined during the COVID drop, clawed our way back. It's really important to think about how hard these operators have worked in this clawing back. So when all the stuff you read in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and how, you know, shale's just not coming back and it's too slow, this is pretty impressive and you're going to find it more impressive when you see the actual numbers and activities that support this because we've done a lot more with less. This happens every time in U.S. shale, no matter what happened from 2010 to now, every time the industry gets sort of pushed back and has to press pause, they do a little better. Gas production is 123 billion cubic feet per day. Um, that's total gross withdrawals um, out of the U.S. Now, we have a 400 BCF a day global market. The U.S. is producing 123 of that. We have enough gas, but the point is, is that in terms of a productive capacity and what we're producing and why we have gas price problems, it's because the gas just does this um, and because we have so much associated gas. So that production, 12 and a half million barrels a day, is pretty impressive um, given where we've been. Um, now, this is your historical rig count chart. It doesn't sound, seem very impressive. You all have seen it a million times. It is, though, when you sort of stare at it a little bit. And the reason why is because, um, you know, we're here. And we dropped a little bit in recent price decline, but we're, we're right here. We're never going to get back to where we were pre-COVID, but we don't really need to. We're 12 and a half million barrels per day, and I'm going to show you that we have, we're not back to the will. We've not, we're not completing as many will, wells as we were before, but we're doing a lot more with less. So we probably don't need to come back to these rig levels, um, and we didn't need to go back to these rig levels before because everybody does a little more with less, laterals get longer, everybody gets more efficient. Um, and this is with all this all this investor pressure. And it is really important to think about. There has been incredible, incredible investor pressure. The anti-oil and gas movement has definitely impacted how operators think about oil and gas. And that's important to consider when we all use it every day and we want lower, we want oil prices. And it's so important for the geopolitical standpoint of this country. Um, this is where we're at on the rig count now. 
it's, I mean, we came off the COVID, we came down, and we're, we've been sort of flat, and we're right here. Important to note is that all that natural gas production, most of that's coming from associated gas. So this is the natural gas recount. We have not seen natural gas, the natural gas recount drop heartily from when we had 10 bucks in MCF in August to two bucks and change today. And that's because so much of these, the oil, um, these oil operators, they're impacted by the gas side, so they'll, they'll drop a little bit. But the point is, is that you're just not gonna see, unless we saw a decline in oil prices, you're not gonna see a material decline in natural gas production. There's an incentive for everyone to go up gas, and I have a bunch of gas slides in here that'll talk about that, but we've done a lot more with less. So our average lateral length, and I know this doesn't look like a whole lot, this is 2016 to 2023, but your average lateral length average. So Trisha, maybe but, you could explain what you mean yeah. by lateral length. So you, when you're drilling two miles into the ground, typically, this is just for the Permian Basin, for example, but all of the US, the average lateral length, that horizontal lateral underground is on average about two miles long. But during the course of, since COVID to now, especially in the Permian Basin, we have seen a significant uptick. We've actually seen in the Marcellus, we've seen in the Haynesville, we've seen in major gas plays where we're drilling significantly longer laterals. So that once two mile long lateral is easily three miles in many places now. And you hear a lot of companies talking about that. And part of that's because it's cheaper. I mean, it's, it's more efficient from an above ground capital cost standpoint about drilling less wells. I have less above ground stuff. But the, the point is that it really does matter when we start talking about production and productivity and are we losing, as our lateral length gets longer, two miles underground and it's three miles, are we losing production from that? And the reason you didn't see that five years ago was because there was concern that we wouldn't be producing as much from the toe or the end of that well. And that is really, the baby's gone out with backwater and we don't see that actually in the data. We've seen pretty good productivity. But on average, we're almost 12,000 12, feet in Midland. Um, in the Permian Basin for an average lateral length, which is just extremely impressive. So it's these small sort of incremental gains that have had big, big movements um, in terms of production and productivity. Christian, what was the last point? Oh, that's just the data that that's not smoothed out. The next month that'll clean up and it'll go the other way. I mean, it's just, it's a just data point. So typically it's that curve, but I don't like to lie with data. So I'd like to keep it there to show you that it's real. But that could be one company that pulled it down because they drilled something shorter. Um, so this shows you, and this is just a snapshot. I know it's a little messy. I'll show a little better in this next one. The public versus private companies. Now, these are your major basins, Wilson Basin. You got the Rockies plays. You got the Permian Basin right here. You have the Eagleford. You got a ton of stuff going on in the Anadarko to Max's point of all that, you know, natural gas was sexy last year because you had high gas prices. It allowed oil companies to actually go after condensate, to go after natural gas liquids, to go after gassier areas in their oil portfolio, which they've not wanted to do for 10 years. So this is the first time we had north of six, we had six and a half dollars in MCF last year for average all last year. You had people wildcatting gas wells everywhere. And what you see is the purple companies are the private. So these are the current snapshot of rigs right now. The orange companies are the publics. And you can see orange companies are, the publics are very cored up, right? They're really concentrated. They got their acreage down. They know what they're doing. These are stellar wells. They always talk about, we don't, you know, acreage running out. Well, you know, we were really running out of acreage and that tier four acreage was such crap. Then why do you see all the purple guys drilling everywhere? I mean, the privates, you know, I mean, private equity money, they still have to defend their dividend and they still have to defend their return. So it's not like people just give these guys money and they don't make a return. So that's just what it looks like right now. And if you don't believe me, this is the ducks, your, your drilled bond completed wells. 
and we don't need to argue and get to debate about what a duck is. The point is that these are wells that have been drilled, and um, they have been a hole has been poked into the ground with a drill bit, and they're waiting on some stage of completion. So they have been done. A rig did do this. These are all the privates. That's insane because that's your publics, and those are nice, beautiful, cored up pieces, and this is your privates. That is telling you a completely different story. They are willing to take a bigger bet than these guys, and. It can't be that all of these are bad. It can't be that every single one of these just suck and that we just run out of acreage. So it really has debunked and disproved a lot of this. We're running out of acreage. And um, a lot of this stuff, if you're, if you're feeling conflicted with some of the things I'm saying, is because a lot of folk, folks have not really paid attention to U.S. shale in a long time and done these deep dives and understanding. Let me look at this facet. Can I just ask a Yeah, please. So you're... I, I'm not asking you to tell me what's, what you think the motivation is, but I'm, but I'm guessing what you're saying is that the, the big guys, are, I mean, the, the publicly traded companies, they're, they're, they're not out there because the returns are less. They're not out there because it's too risky, or maybe it's, is it a kind of systemic thing with the big corporate? You know, they want to be in one place, they want to get the long-term economies of scaling. Can you really parse out how much of that is ESG and government opposition versus a kind of fundamental economic strategy? When you talk to them, what do they say? Well, yeah, so if you haven't listened to the Fashion Rumors podcast, you should, because okay. there's a, a lot, I have a lot of folks on it that are public and private, and they tell you very different things. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to have a debate. So your question's really good, um, and I, I think I can show this in some data points. Parsing out perfectly how much of, you know, these are, you know, this is your rig count for your publics and your privates. Your private, this is all rigs right now in the US. Privates are in red, um, publics are in purple. So what this is telling you is that you have more, you know, you, you have still, everybody's come off a cliff, but you've got more activity by the privates than you did pre-COVID. So why, I mean, to lose question, I mean, are the publics just not, um, the, is it ESG, is it investor pressure, what is it exactly? They're using a lot of, different things. So they are using a bit of an excuse that, hey, we have this investor pressure. This is a great time to return money to shareholders. They absolutely needed to return money to shareholders because they had squandered a lot of cash previously. But that being said, is share buybacks the only thing to do? I mean, is it the smartest thing to do? Investor pressure, unlike inflation, and, and Fed got it wrong, investor pressure is transitory. It does change. So, you know, several years ago, we were doing share buybacks and companies were using debt to buy back shares when they weren't making money. That wasn't very smart. And share buybacks is kind of transitory. Dividends is very hot. I mean, you want to be a dividend company right now because you want somebody to be incentivized to put your company in a, in a portfolio and, and in a long-only portfolio. I think the share buybacks will probably bite operators, some of them, in the long run because it's $83 oil right now. I would, I would wager it. This is a pretty good time to put the drill bit down to the ground. And maybe if they had boards that would talk more like this, and opposed to ones that are pumping energy transition so much, the board members would say, hey, we should probably be drilling for oil too, and we shouldn't be investing in the long haul. But everyone's afraid to say, I hire oil and gas, even though they drill for oil and gas for a living. Yeah? How, how much was impacted by the period of low interest rates and the banks willing to lend? And how does that change now with higher interest rates and the banks a little bit more tight on either capital or the cost of borrowing that money? Um, well, I mean, we're all we have a banking, ensuing banking crisis just sort of sitting upon us and this potential commercial real estate. And something that people have not spoke about is the oil and gas side. The exposure on oil and gas that I talked to 
clients of mine, and I talk to various companies, and um, you know, regional banks, you have to start questioning you know, the exposure that regional banks have with their operators, and trust me, the love for oil and gas is not gonna be there like it was for SVB, bailing out a bunch of billionaires in tech. You know, they're not gonna care at all if a bunch of oil companies go under in Midland, and people go under with it, but the exposure's really serious, and so I think the, you were hearing last year as interest rates were ticking up, some operators were having issues, some of them were doing fine, but most operators, a lot of them, are making a crap ton of money from operations. So we don't have the same problem. I mean, we still have debt issues and money and banking, but you don't have the same issues you had 10 years ago where you weren't making money from operations. Now you have a lot of production, oil prices are 80 bucks a barrel, and so if you've got that production, you're making money from operations. The difference is before we would have drilled with that, and now we're not. So, and you have this investor problem where you've got a group, you know, half of you, and you're in a boardroom, and people are pretty damn confused on what the hell to do, and they're torn between the FT and the Wall Street Journal, and you know, energy transition here and there, and it's so green, and we're not going to be in business ten years from now, and it's exhausting. And then you have all these layers of regulatory uncertainty, and we can't get people in the field, and we can't, we can't even get petroleum engineers because nobody wants to go to school for petroleum engineering because they're going to be doing wind and solar tomorrow, not not petroleum engineering. So. It's a really, the hurdles are really significant. And as, as Lou and, and Everett has pointed out for a long time, ener crappy energy policies really have an impact on the long term. And we are in the heart of really crappy energy policies right now. Um, that's your public-private account split just in the Permian, for example. It was neck and neck with publics and privates. It split out when oil prices dropped. Private companies are super sensitive to oil prices. They responded super quickly in COVID when prices came off. The private companies went off to the races and the public companies held back. Um, for all these reasons, they were slow. They took their time to even figure out what the hell was going on with COVID. But the shareholder stuff that happened in 2021 on the same day with Exxon and Chevron um, and Shell on, in May of 2021 was a really big deal for them. Um, this is Permian Basin oil and gas production. Basically the biggest growth drivers we've had in, in the US. And it's really important to understand this because every other play I showed you is largely dominated by public companies. And so those oil plays are not growing. The Permian is dominated by privates. So it is growing and that activity is there. And that's meaningful because that's, that's just the map. Um, but, Chris, quick question. Yep. So, well, one question for you too. How much of the limitation of supply chain has to do with not just the particular supply chain, but the major trading lines to maximize the speed of the Unless you're willing to sign up for a three-year contract for capital up front, pay a capital amount beforehand, and wait six to 12 months to get the capital, you don't get there. So it's been somewhat limited in that market. I don't know how much outside the SG really exists in that. And the other is how you coded public versus private. Because if you look at the spectrum, for example, when Perkins took the Continental Pack private, it's, there's only a handful of those companies, and these are the ones with it's public versus private. If it's public and it's got a ticker, then it's public. If it's private and it doesn't, then it's private. I so, the is yeah, but it's a hand, It's not nearly as consequential because, as you know, the publics drop their rig counts, so it's included in there, and it did. It is included in the flip. Um, but your question on this is this stuff gets really nuanced and tricky, and it, it's a lot of there's a lot of excuses that people have about, okay, well, we just can't get enough rigs, and we just can't get the frac fleet, we just couldn't do this. And there's some truth to that in terms of when, when it was ramping up. When, when we were ramping up after COVID, there was a little bit of truth to that. Everybody grabbed the nicest rigs that were available, 
And um, they left the crappy ones that were sitting out. They, they weren't going to take those back. They grabbed the nicest run ones, but it was private companies, some of them in Colorado, that were drilling through the whole damn thing, completing these wells for nothing, fracking them for nothing, um, drilling them for nothing because the day rates were so low on the rigs. When everyone comes back and the public companies realize that uh, they are going to be producing oil and gas for a couple more years, they, they had their rates lined up, but it was the fringy stuff. It, it was that when they told the market, hey, could you add 20 more rigs? Because Exxon went from 55 rigs to seven. So it's a bit of a difference. So when they say, the market's kind of looking at them like, are you going to bring these back? And they said, well, we couldn't get them if we wanted to. And it wasn't just the rigs, they couldn't get the people. So the inflationary environment is so, the inflation on the market is huge. And that, that is a, probably one of the single biggest weights now is labor in the field, the inflationary environment, and it's compounded for oil and gas because everyone hates oil and gas. So nobody wants to work in oil and gas. Nobody, nobody sees it as a positive, like, how long are you going to be here? And it gets, it gets really tricky. And that's why the messaging and the story of the U.S. being the largest oil and gas producer and that we're going to need this is so critically important or we're not going to have it because people have to work in this business. And so there's several different factors, one, but you're correct. One of them is you know, availability of equipment, but it's really the people on that equipment and having the right people. And we have the industry, like every industry, and like restaurants, and everyone has struggled with that since COVID to now. Um, this is so, greatest way to probably see that investor pressure in, in ESG in all different forms is the wells. So forget the rigs, forget the equipment that we talked about, forget, this is the well that you've completed. You've actually drilled and brought them onto production and they are in the system and, and they're completing. Private companies, this barred line is the wells, and that black line is oil prices, so you can see how easily they respond to oil prices, and the, the line that corresponds to the color are the rigs. So, also tells you that you don't need, you're not gonna keep ramping up rigs that you've added the wells. This is public companies, you never, we've not come back to our well completions in the US, um, we're not even close for the, from pre-COVID. So this is, and this is important, this has a meaningful impact to U.S. oil and gas production. And this is a story that needs to be told and public companies need to be taking about this seriously because they're letting these guys eat their lunch. Um, and you know, that's just reality. Um, that's Permian completions, that's just a comparison so you can see the same thing. The private companies in the Permian have just been adding those wells consistently. Um, the public's just haven't come back. And on the productivity side, and I'll close with, I only have this and then we'll close with this productivity a little bit, is that um, with all the stuff I've shown you, with the public, with the private companies stepping out and they're not in the court acreage and um, not being able to get rigs and not having availability and having new people and having much longer laterals, all this would tell you that we probably should have diminishing marginal returns as we get in longer laterals. We probably should be see some serious declines in productivity. And we don't because this is all U.S. shale place. This is the Permian, this is the Anadarko Basin, this is the Wilson Basin, this is the Powder River Basin, and this is the Eagle Fork. All together, normalized for lateral length, so I'm not picking a 4,000 you know, 4, foot lateral and a 10,000 foot lateral. This is all normalized to 10,000 feet. This is your productivity. And for 2022, we're not doing that bad. We're right in line where we've been through the last couple of years. So you would expect that this to really come down significantly, and it hasn't, which tells you we are doing a lot more with less and the rock's definitely not done giving. The other side of this is gas, to your point, Max, is gas was so, the price was so good and it was so great, that incentive to go after gas, gas is also a driver for oil. It bring, it's associated, but it helps bring that up. So you've got areas in the Delaware Basin in the Permian 
that are 13,000 foot deep, it's hot, it's thermally mature, and it's got a massive gas production and a gas drive. And so when, I dr when EOG is drilling that well or whatever company, they're producing maybe 3,000 barrels a day, but they're getting 3,000 to 5,000 MCF a day of gas as well that's helping drive that out. Now that was really appealing last year. So we saw the gas curve, that's the all-time high. This is 2022. The gas went way up in all those oil plays. Gas production is up massively. And that's telling you something. They were targeting gas. And that's why we have low gas prices. Yeah. Sorry. Just, I don't, I don't mean to steal your thunder, but um, to what degree does uh, Freeport being offline affect the other price of gas, especially in a play like you just described, 13,000 feet? Stuff's really great. It's coming up by about a fraction of what you decided. It didn't impact it in terms of the production, actually. It hasn't impacted it materially. In terms of fact that you didn't have uh, some place to move. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's had a significant impact in terms of the market, which we can get into, I think, a discussion of where does this gas go, which goes to his discussion of, you know, where's this the LNG side. But this is your Eagleford, which is on the Gulf Coast. Um, and you can see that that's, uh, it's a, it has condensate, it has natural gas, it has oil, and the gas side of this is the highest it's ever been in 2022 for productivity. Um, Wilson Basin is an oil play, the first shale oil play up way north in North Dakota, and that is the productivity curve for 2022. Everybody said the Wilson is dead, that's not, it's just done, we can't do anymore. It's clearly it's not dead, it actually did really well during 2022. Um, I've talked about that, and we, we went through this, that you can actually look at the numbers for shale reinvestment um, were really low. Um, the impact of understanding how, how much of this fuel is actually in the mix is critically important. Um, we do have to start changing our talk about energy transition and the realities in it. I don't even call them fossil fuels, I call them traditional fuels. It's crude oil, it's natural gas, and it's coal. Um, and these regulations are massive. They, they do weigh on the industry. I have to speak with the, I speak with these executives and these business leaders all the time. And the impact and the stuff coming out of Washington impacts all these companies and how they see the market. And it's confusing as hell. And it's important that the industry does start articulating and pushing back and saying, you know, what we do for a living and why this is important. Um, all these things, recession, uncertainty, regulatory, labor, cost, permitting delays. If you look at the Dallas Fed survey, um, companies will tell you exactly what they feel. And they have these things that come out. And I have curated and went through all of them. Regulatory issues are one of the single biggest things, in addition to not getting people, in addition to costs, in addition to inflation, everything else. This is a very hard business. This is not easy. And this uh, capital, no offense, but I mean, this DC and Guap, this administration is not making this any easier. And it's really important to realize that there are going to be implications for us in the future. The G7 communicating, I, th I want to close on this because I think it's really, really critical. Where we're saying about investment now is going to matter how this goes down in the future. And I did not interpret this as favorably. This is a very long document, this G7 <laughs> I've read the whole thing. Um, it's pretty painful. It's very it's, progressive. It's, it's really painful. It's extremely <laughs> inclusive. You've got to get to the end to where we start talking about oil and gas. And this is where he meant to have this slide. So I don't want to take your thunder, but I do have the slide. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this is where it says, you know, and I had to call the fact that it has to be qualified. So they, the whole paper is on uh, the crisis and everything and how we're going to the energy transition. And then it says, quote, investment in the gas sector can be appropriate. Can be? Jiminy crickets. It, it, is, it, it is appropriate now and for a long time. And so, and I think countries have to, the, 
it, we would be do a lot better if, if you know, countries that want this natural gas that need it um, would push back harder and say it has to be included. And our operators need that, and we do need it for long-term contracts for LNG because Europe is um, not signing long-term contracts for US LNG, and we aren't getting LNG facilities built because the investors don't know about the long term. We all in this room know it's going to be around the long term, but we, but. We need the buyers and sellers and everybody on each side to do this. And business is hard. And so getting folks around this and sort of uh, getting the politics aside and talking about business is extremely important. Um, so this stuff really does matter because it comes down the pipeline. And LNG is a 50 BCF a day market, according in 2021. 50 BCF a day out of that 400 BCF a day. So if we want to grow that and we want to put this stuff on the water, and again, if we have 123 billion cubic feet per day in the US, we can damn sure add a lot of, of this stuff on the water. And every molecule that goes on the water is dropping that price. It's, it's bringing security supply to the global market. And it's, it's making sure that our allies in our country, countries like Japan, can actually get that um, whenever they need it. Um, that's just, this is just the price for drilling a barrel of oil. We're not going to be shutting in crude anytime soon in the US. Prices are too high. There's a floor on prices. But um, this is also comes from the Dallas Fed. Really great figures. The price to drill for oil has gone up certainly because of inflation, but um, they're also, they're really profitable right now. So with that, um, I will close and thank you very much. Before I just do a quick advertisement, so Chris has been working on a paper for Beverly for But it's done. I wasn't working on it for two years. I just didn't do it. And I did it in like a night. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's, uh, it's these the illustrators wrestling it to the ground. And I think, so if you don't, if you're not on our mailing list, BC will, so you'll get the paper when it comes out. And also, I should say, that has a paper coming out next year that's really interesting. And it'll be published by, uh, by us, but also the Real Clear Foundation. So with uh, that, and I will stop. Trishy, there must be some questions. You are always fantastic. Thank you. There's a tiny provision in the proposed methane regulation mm -hmm. EPA that has me really worried. And it is to mandate, should it should the pool go final the way it's been proposed, to mandate electrification of upstream production before the production can enter into market. Some of us that are on the electric side as well. I'm pointing to you, But some of us are very worried because there's some of the same choke points, bottlenecks that you're talking about on the electric side. The production guys can't wait for the utilities to find the staff to drive the truck, to find the distribution transformer to electrify the production. So I'm worried that some of those little guys that are, were they in purple? Not yellow. <laughs> some, of the, some of the guys, independents, may get, they may, they may wither on the vine while they're waiting for the electric to electrify, meaning they can't use their own uh, diesel or burn their own gas. They gotta wait for electricity. Forcing electrification on upstream production everywhere is one of the dumbest ideas. I'm but I'm worried that nobody seems to 
Nobody seems to worry about this. Um, so it, it, that is a serious issue, and I have not read that document in its entirety. Um, and I think like, that there's many, many dumb things that have come out on paper um, and have yet to be enforced. That uh, electricity, as it is today, is also another point. So what I did put in here, because I was shortening all this up, but that's one of the points that you have operators saying they already have a, they already have electricity issues in the field. Yeah. We all know that we couldn't electrify, we couldn't all get EVs and plug them into the grid right now if we wanted to because it would kill the damn grid. So the whole electrifying thing is a problem in general. You'd also need to increase generation capacity, which we're not doing. So it's not going to happen. The energy transition is dead before it began, but that's this is part of it. And in the field, it would have an impact. And this is, um, you know, a lot of operators, one, they just are, they've got so much stuff going on, they probably even got, haven't got to that point yet of reading that stuff and understanding it. And you do have a lot of privates who don't appreciate that this stuff will impact them. They think right now prices are good and they're just running and gunning and they're doing everything and, you know, it'll work itself out. Because guess what? It always has in the past. If in previous administrations, we've never had one like this. We've never done this. So the Obama administration talked big, but they didn't do much. And, you know, they let business sort of go. This one's a lot different because with that, those regulations, the um, EPA thing, as well as the climate change proposed rules from the SEC, those are really big. That's a, another 300-page document, sorry. Um, or set, I don't, can't even remember. It mentions uh, scope through emissions like 300 times. That's a pretty big deal for, for, this, uh, for this. So I think that's just one of the many, but it's, it is really, really serious. You are seeing companies, uh, frac companies, that are pushing into the electric side for, I think that's very, one of these many reasons. Um, to just have that diversity. But I think uh, Governor Abbott might have something to say about uh, allowing his company, companies in his state, how they're going to do that. So you are having states that are pushing back on some of this stuff. Uh, Colorado is imposing extremely stringent air emission standards, which is probably another new fracking ban going on the way of California. So there's a lot of state stuff. But it, this stuff is just coming down the pipeline like crazy, and it is weighing on these guys massively. Um, and it's, it will come back to, it's gonna hit everyone. Um, but it, it is very, very serious. Um, that, and we didn't even talk about the SPR coming down to nothing.